Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 9, The Great Knock Part 2 I arrived at Gaston's, so the Knock's home was called, on a Saturday, and he announced that we would begin Homer on Monday. I explained that I had never read a word in any dialect but the Attic, assuming that when he knew this, he would approach Homer through some preliminary lessons on the epic language. He replied merely with a sound very frequent in his conversation, which I can only call, huh. I found this rather disquieting, and I woke on Monday saying to myself, now for Homer, golly. The name struck awe into my soul. At nine o'clock we sat down to work in the little upstairs study which soon became so familiar to me. It contained a sofa, on which we sat side by side when he was working with me. A table and chair, which I used when I was alone a bookcase, a gas stove, and a framed photograph of Mr. Gladstone. We opened our books at Iliad, Book One. Without a word of introduction, Nock read aloud the first twenty lines or so in the new pronunciation, which I had never heard before. Like Smuggy, he was a chanter. Less mellow in voice, yet his frill gutturals and rolling R's and more varied vowels seemed to suit the Bronze Age epic as well as Smuggy's honey tongue had suited Horace. For Kirk, even after years of residence in England, spoke the purest Ulster. He then translated, with a few, a very few, explanations, about a hundred lines. I had never seen a classical author taken in such large gulps before. When he had finished, he handed me over Crucius's lexicon, and, having told me to go through again as much as I could of what he had done, left the room. It seems an odd method of teaching, but it worked. At first I could travel only a very short way along the trail he had blazed, but every day I could travel further. Presently I could travel the whole way. Then I could go a line or two beyond his furthest north. Then it became a game to see how far beyond. He appeared at this stage to value speed more than absolute accuracy. The great gain was that I very soon became able to understand a great deal without even mentally translating it. I was beginning to think in Greek. That is the great Rubicon to cross in learning any language. Those in whom the Greek word lives only while they are hunting for it in the lexicon, and who then substitute the English word for it, are not reading the Greek at all. They are only solving a puzzle. The very formula, nos, means a ship, is wrong. Nos and ship both mean a thing. They do not mean one another. Behind nos, as behind navis or naka, we want to have a picture of a dark, slender mass with sail or oars, climbing the ridges, with no officious English word intruding. We now settled into a routine which has ever since served in my mind as an archetype, so that what I still mean when I speak of a normal day, and lament that normal days are so rare, is a day of the bookum pattern. For if I could please myself, I would always live as I lived there. I would choose always to breakfast at exactly eight, and be at my desk by nine, there to read or write till one. If a cup of good tea or coffee could be brought me about eleven, so much the better. A step or so out of doors for a pint of beer would not do quite so well, for a man does not want to drink alone, and if you meet a friend in the tap room, the break is likely to be extended beyond its ten minutes. At one precisely, lunch should be on the table, 
and by two at the latest I would be on the road, not, except at rare intervals, with a friend. Walking and talking are two very great pleasures, but it is a mistake to combine them. Our own noise blots out the sounds and silences of the outdoor world, and talking leads almost inevitably to smoking, and then farewell to nature as far as one of our senses is concerned. The only friend to walk with is one, such as I found during the holidays in Arthur, who so exactly shares your taste for each mood of the countryside that a glance, a halt, or at most a nudge is enough to assure us that the pleasure is shared. The return from the walk and the arrival of tea should be exactly coincident, and not later than a quarter past four. Tea should be taken in solitude, as I took it at Bookham, on those happily numerous occasions when Mrs. Kirkpatrick was out. The knock himself disdained this meal, for eating and reading are two pleasures that combine admirably. Of course, not all books are suitable for mealtime reading. It would be a kind of blasphemy to read poetry at table. What one wants is a gossipy, formless book, which can be opened anywhere. The ones I learned so to use at Bookham were Boswell, and a translation of Herodotus, and Lang's History of English Literature, Tristram Shandy, Elia, and The Anatomy of Melancholy are all good for the same purpose. At five, a man should be at work again, and at it till seven. Then, at the evening meal and after, comes the time for talk, or, failing that, for lighter reading. And unless you are making a night of it with your cronies, and at Bookham I had none, there is no reason why you should ever be in bed later than eleven. But when is a man to write his letters? You forget that I am describing the happy life I led with Kirk, or the ideal life I would live now if I could. And it is an essential of the happy life that a man would have almost no mail, and never dread the postman's knock. In those blessed days I received and answered only two letters a week, one from my father, which was a matter of duty, and one from Arthur, which was the highlight of the week, for we poured out to each other on paper the delight that was intoxicating us both. Letters from my brother, now on active service, were longer and rarer, and so were my replies. Such is my ideal, and such then, almost, was the reality, of settled, calm, epicurean life. It is no doubt for my own good that I have been so generally prevented from leading it, but it is a life almost entirely selfish. Selfish, not self-centered, for in such a life my mind would be directed towards a thousand things, not one of which is myself. The distinction is not unimportant. One of the happiest men and most pleasing companions I have ever known was intensely selfish. On the other hand, I have known people capable of real sacrifice, whose lives were nevertheless a misery to themselves and to others, because self-concern and self-pity filled all their thoughts. Either condition will destroy the soul in the end. But, till the end, give me the man who takes the best of everything, even at my expense, and then talks of other things, rather than the man who serves me and talks of himself." and whose very kindnesses are a continual reproach, a continual demand for pity, gratitude, and admiration. Kirk did not, of course, make me read nothing but Homer. The two great bores, Demosthenes and Cicero, could not be avoided. There were, O oh glory, Lucretius, Catullus, Tacitus, Herodotus. There was Virgil, for whom I still had no true taste. There were Greek and Latin compositions, it is a strange thing that I have contrived to reach my late fifties without ever reading one word of Caesar. There were Euripides, Sophocles, 
Aeschylus. In the evenings there was French with Mrs. Kirkpatrick, treated much as her husband treated Homer. We got through a great many good novels in this way, and I was soon buying French books of my own. I had hoped there would be English essays, but whether because he felt he could not endure mine, or because he soon guessed that I was already only too proficient in that art, which he almost certainly despised, Kirk never sent me one. For the first week or so he gave me directions about my English reading, but when he discovered that, left to myself, I was not likely to waste my time, he gave me absolute freedom. Later in my career we branched out into German and Italian. Here his methods were the same. After the very briefest contact with grammars and of exercises, I was plunged into Faust and the Inferno. In Italian we succeeded. In German I have little doubt that we should have equally succeeded if I had stayed with him a little longer. But I left too soon, and my German has remained all my life that of a schoolboy. Whenever I have set about rectifying this, some other and more urgent task has always interrupted me. But Homer came first. Day after day and month after month we drove gloriously onward, tearing the whole Achilles out of the Iliad and tossing the rest on one side, and then reading the Odyssey entire, till the music of the thing and the clear, bitter brightness that lives in almost every formula had become part of me. Of course, my appreciation was very romanticized, the appreciation of a boy soaked in William Morris. But this slight error saved me from that far deeper error of classicism, with which the humanists have hoodwinked half the world. I cannot therefore deeply regret the days when I called Circe a wise wife, and every marriage a high tide. That has all burned itself out and left no snuff, and I can now enjoy the Odyssey in a maturer way. The wanderings mean as much as ever they did. The great moment of eucatastrophe, as Professor Tolkien would call it, when Odysseus strips off his rags and bends the bow, means more. And perhaps what now pleases me best of all is those exquisite Charlotte M. Yonge families at Pylos and elsewhere. How rightly Sir Maurice Powicke says, there have been civilized people in all ages. And let us add, in all ages they have been surrounded by barbarism. Meanwhile, on afternoons and on Sundays, Surrey lay open to me. County down in the holidays and Surrey in the term. It was an excellent contrast. Perhaps, since their beauties were such that even a fool could not force them into competition, this cured me once and for all of the pernicious tendency to compare and to prefer, an operation that does little good even when we are dealing with works of art and endless harm when we are dealing with nature. Total surrender is the first step towards the fruition of either. Shut your mouth, open your eyes and ears. Take in what is there and give no thought to what might have been there or what is somewhere else. That can come later if it must come at all. And notice here how the true training for anything whatever that is good always prefigures and, if submitted to, will always help us in the true training for the Christian life. That is a school where they can always use your previous work, whatever subject it was on. What delighted me in Surrey was its intricacy. My Irish walks commanded large horizons, and the general lie of the land and sea could be taken in at a glance. I will try to speak of them later. But in Surrey, the contours were so tortuous, the little valleys so narrow. There was so much timber, so many villages concealed in woods or hollows, so many field paths, sunk lanes, dingles, copses, such an unpredictable variety of cottage, farmhouse, villa, and country seat that the whole thing could never lie clearly in my mind, 
and to walk in it daily gave one the same sort of pleasure that there is in the labyrinthine complexity of Mallory or the Fairy Queen. Even where the prospect was tolerably open, as when I sat looking down on the Leatherhead and Dorking Valley from Polesden Lacey, it always lacked the classic comprehensibility of the Wyvern landscape. The valley twisted away southward into another valley. A train thudded past invisible in a wooded cutting. The opposite ridge concealed its bays and promontories. This, even on a summer morning. But I remember more dearly autumn afternoons in bottoms that lay intensely silent under old and great trees, and especially the moment, near Friday Street, when our party, that time I was not alone, suddenly discovered, from recognizing a curiously shaped stump, that we had traveled round in a circle for the last half hour or one frosty sunset over the hog's back at Guilford, on a Saturday afternoon in winter, when nose and finger might be pinched enough to give an added relish to the anticipation of tea and fireside, and the whole weekend's reading lay ahead. I suppose I reached as much happiness as is ever to be reached on earth, and especially if there were some new, long-coveted book awaiting me, for I had forgotten. When I spoke of the post I forgot to tell you that it brought parcels as well as letters. Every man of my age has had in his youth one blessing for which our juniors may well envy him. We grew up in a world of cheap and abundant books. Your every man was then a bare shilling, and what is more, always in stock. Your world's classic, Muse's Library, Home University Library, Temple Classic, Nelson's French Series, Bone and Longman's Pocket Library, at proportionate prices. All the money I could spare went in postal orders to Messrs. Danny of the Strand. No days, even at Bookham, were happier than those on which the afternoon post brought me a neat little parcel in dark gray paper. Milton, Spencer, Mallory, the high history of the Holy Grail, the Laxdale saga, Ronsard, Chenier, Voltaire, Beowulf, and Gawain and the Green Knight, both in translations, Apuleius, the Kalevala, Herrick, Walton, Sir John Mandeville, Sidney's Arcadia, and nearly all of Morris came volume by volume into my hands. Some of my purchases proved disappointments, and some went beyond my hopes. But the undoing of the parcel always remained a delicious moment. On my rare visits to London, I looked at Messrs. Denny in the Strand with a kind of awe. So much pleasure had come from it. Smuggy and Kirk were my two greatest teachers. Roughly, one might say, in medieval language, that Smugi taught me grammar and rhetoric and Kirk taught me dialectic. Each had and gave me what the other lacked. Kirk had none of Smugi's graciousness or delicacy, and Smugi had less humor than Kirk. It was a Saturnine humor. Indeed, he was very like Saturn. Not the dispossessed king of Italian legend, but grim old Kronos, father time himself with scythe and hourglass, the bitterest, and also funniest things came out when he had risen abruptly from table, always before the rest of us, and stood ferreting in a villainous old tobacco jar on the mantelpiece for the dottles of former pipes which it was his frugal habit to use again. My debt to him is very great. My reverence to this day undiminished. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. 
When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>